irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Talk Radio. This is Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. Welcome back to another night of Max and Friends. Now, if you're tuning in for the first time, where have you been? We are here 13 years and we welcome you to this now present moment. I bow to you all and I say thank you. Really, I have gratitude in my heart for having you join us. There's a million podcasts you can listen to and I'm grateful you're tuning in to Max and Friends. Now, if you're tuning in on all the podcasting platforms, thank you. Tweet me at Max Tucci. Instagram me at Max Tucci. And let me know what platforms you're tuning in on. You know, the quest for life for me is to have harmony. Harmony is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Peace, joy, harmony, love. So many wonderful adjectives to describe this feeling of love. Um, And I think that love starts with really family and self. Self, family, global family. My guest tonight is an amazing author, accomplished in many, many sectors of life. Dr. Desai is Senior Advisor of Global Affairs, the President and Chair of the Committee on Global Thought at Columbia University, and author of the new book, World as Family, A Journey of Multi-Rooted Belongings. Dr. Desai is a noted scholar of Asian art and frequent commentator at the intersection of arts and contemporary issues. She is the past president and CEO of the Asia Society. And she's our guest here tonight on Max and Friends. And stay tuned because tonight's theme and thread of the show is more than we are family, global family. And also as Dr. Desai's book is titled, World as Family. It's a proverb from what I understand. And so without any further ado, I welcome to the show Dr. Desai. Welcome to Max and Friends, Dr. Desai. Thank you, Max. Wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. So it would be so difficult to say, let's start at the genesis of Dr. Desai, because you have lived such a full and enriched life. But take me to the journey of your childhood, you growing up as a little girl, and what your dreams were. Well, you know, it's funny you should say that we should start at the beginning. Begin at the beginning. (laughs) Indeed, I was born um, what I would call at the dawn of new India. Independent India, 1947. I was born a couple of years after that. And my parents were both freedom fighters, very involved in in India's independence struggle, Gandhian. Um, So this idea that you have to be expansive in how you think of the world, partly really came for me from my family. And I was one of seven children, four girls, three boys, lots of people. um, And I was right in the middle. So part of it was to really learn about how to find myself as an independent person without forgetting that you're part of a larger unit, which is what families are all about, which is to have that relationship between independence and interdependence. And I would say that, you know, I didn't really know that when I was young at a time, but if you're a third child out of seven, you got to kind of get your face right in there, you know, but at the same time, know that not everything is about you. And so my journey of thinking about world beyond yourself really began in my own family. Mm, in your own home. You know, last week I did a show with Gordana Birnad, who's part of Oprah Super Soul 100. And we talked about ego and soul. And I think to be in a family of seven, you have to understand the balance of both ego and soul <laughs> right. in order to right. thrive. So being the third child and learning independence, how old do you feel you were as a child? What age were you when you felt 
that you were independent and you stood firm in who you were? Well, I have to tell you a story which is not in the book. And that is that I had two older sisters. My oldest sister at 10 months was reciting Sanskrit shlokas, right? So she is amazingly well-spoken when she's a child. My second sister is running around and talking when she's one year old. I come along and I didn't speak a word (laughs) until I was two and a half. They took me to the doctors and they said, why is she not speaking? And they said, she understands everything. She doesn't see a need to speak. So I think it was my way of making myself distinct. In silence. And the first sentence out of my mouth, it goes, I don't remember, but my mother told me that. And that is that I said, no, I don't want that. Full sentence. Beautiful. No babble, no nothing. So I think that was my way of distinguishing myself. And then it was really about learning to dance and dancing with sculptures in our backyard because my father was a collector, but also a freedom fighter, also an activist. So making stories with sculptures and then really starting to dance when I was seven years old. And that was another way that I think I made myself known as being a little different from everybody else. You know, I love, no, I don't want that at a young age, because what that does is it builds boundaries. It's knowing what you don't want (laughs) so you can celebrate what you do want. So I want to get into a little bit about global thought. And then we're going to get into your book. And I recommend everyone right now who's listening, thank you for tuning in to Max and Friends. My guest is Dr. Desai. The book, World as Family, please order the book, get the book, support the book, love the book, and share the book. You know, there's something about a book where if you keep it to yourself, it's one thing. But when you share it with others, you build a global family. So what does global thought mean to you, Dr. Desai? You know, I chair this thing called Committee on Global Thought at Columbia, right? And we have a graduate program. We have students coming in. And they often say, but what is global thought? And I said, that's why you're here. Figure it out. Because it depends on how you look at it. But the way I think about it, thinking globally is that you have to think about no matter where you are, think about the relationship of your action and your thinking for a larger world in a larger world. So global is relational, global is not anti-national, and global is not anti-local. Global is part and parcel of these layers that we must live to accommodate and live with. That is, everything you do, whether you buy your T-shirt in Walmart that is made in, used to be made in China, now it may be made in Indonesia. Think about what it means. When you wear that, what is the condition of the workers in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, wherever it would be? Because our world that we live in is getting smaller and smaller, even though we also fight harder and harder Mm -hmm. for our little patch of the land, right? And so we have to understand that we can fight as hard as we want and put borders as as we want. But pandemics and climate crisis, Mm -hmm. they don't know any borders. They go everywhere. People go everywhere. So we have to figure out that the world is right in our own community, as well as a community in the world. And so for me, global has to be a lived reality in a conscious way. And that's what the book is about. Absolutely. You know, I, we always, I like to phrase my show as conscious conversations versus unconscious conversations. And we have many unconscious conversations where it's just babble. It's Babel. It's a tower of Babel that quickly is destructed. And when we have conscious conversations, it's when we can take a pause and not only speak, but to listen. And I love that you said when we go shopping, because there is something in the essence of, of conscious purchasing also, right. where we do think of others as opposed to just self. And then we're able to, I love to say, you know, maybe we're like, oh, it's a small world. When I meet someone and I know someone, oh, it's a small world. I said, no, no, it's a large, huge world, but the circles are small. 
And I feel with pandemic, we've learned that the circles are even smaller and that together we rise and together we are one. So with that said, world as family. When was this book initially in your spirit to write? Well, let me just say that this phrase, world as family, not a proverb, but it's a phrase. It's a, it's right. a verse. And it, it is 3,000 years old. Vasudeva Kutumbakam, as it, you would say it in Sanskrit. And it's partly because I come from India, partly also because I actually am a student of Indian art and history. And so this is a phrase that's very well known. It's in front of the parliament in India. And so it's kind of cliche. People say that. And I thought, you know, there's something in this phrase that's worth thinking about. So I started writing the book. Initially, I was going to write about what got away. And then I realized that it's the students that I teach at Columbia and also the exchange program that I actually chair that uh, that was part of my life, too, that brought me to California initially almost more than 55 years ago. And the students were asking and saying, how did you become so passionate about things global? How did you get to think about that? And I said, you know, that's a good question. I better excavate my life to say, how did I get to be who I am and so passionate about thinking about global as part and parcel of our reality. So it was my attempt to try to learn that. Then COVID happens. The book was pretty much finished. I was going to try to just look at it one more time, give it to the publishers at Columbia University Press. And at that point, to tell you the truth, I actually thought, oh, world as family sounds too idealistic, too broad, too general. Maybe I should come up with a new title. Mm. And when the pandemic hit me, and hit all of us and the world. And I said, oh my God, the brilliance of this 3,000 year old phrase is in trying to understand the world as family. We all know what a family is. Functional family, dysfunctional family. But we know that at least if the family works, we understand our place as individual in part of the unit. So you're constantly thinking about independence in relation to interdependence, individual in relation to the collective. And it is that concept of family that we must apply to the world because, let's face it, our global family is pretty dysfunctional right now. And And we've got to repair it. And it's suffering. You know, I feel like, you know, your book is the hug that the mother has never given to their child. Your book is the acknowledgement that the father has never given to his son. I think the book, Global Family, a journey of multi-rooted belongings, just the word belongings is, it's a, it's a cashmere blanket. (laughs) (laughs) You feel belonged in a world where people feel lost and broken and uh, and thrown to the side. You know, I've seen so many people over the last year just feel so disconnected from humanity because the common thread we all have is, do you hear me? Do you see me? Do I matter? And when right. a book like this comes out, what you're doing to the reader is acknowledging to them, I see you, I hear you, we matter, and together we rise. Why did you use the words a journey of multi-rooted belongings as your subtitle? Exactly. I mean, part of it was that I did not want to write about global belonging, global thinking, global whatever, as some kind of abstract idea, because most of the people think global is abstracted. It's like a Davos man, you know, with a suitcase and walking around (laughs) and talking about globalization in terms of economic sense. And it has gotten bad rap, let's face it, because it's too extractive. And I realized that that may be true and is true in many cases, but global as a lived reality lives in that notion of multiplicity that we all inhabit. 
And my personal story of coming from India, being in America, and then working with people from all over the world, I realized that we need to actually think of this as a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen instantaneously. It's something we continue to acquire over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And belongings with a plural also suggests that it's possible to belong to more than one place. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to see others as belonging to more than one place. So don't force people and put them in boxes. When we put people in boxes, as we have done, whether it's a case of George Floyd or whether it's the uh, anti-Asian violence right now, it's because we want to see them only as one way, the other, not human Mm. enough, not like us, different from us. And when you do that, what you're doing is to say to somebody, I see you not the way you are, but the way I think you are. So in the Asian cases, it's almost like saying, you're not American enough. You're somebody else. You're the other. And then, therefore, it's okay for me to insult you, to even kill you, to even attack you. That we have to really, as you talked about conscious conversation, see the human beings as human beings first. Then recognize the differences that we bring to the table. But the differences don't need to be so different that you put them again in a box. That's mm. the reality. The differences I mean, for me need to be celebrated. Because if exactly. we didn't have differences, you know, I always refer to nature. If there was just one palette of green and one palette of blue, it would be so boring to look at the sky and the trees and nature. And what I love about nature is that when a flower grows and blooms, it does it effortlessly. And it doesn't look at the flower next to it and judge it. <laughs> and yeah. yet they, there is a co-creation and a, and a beautiful coexistence of nature. And so... For me, again, when there's a book like yours, Global Family, that listeners, thank, you know, I get into conversation, I forget we're doing a radio show. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. My guest is Dr. Desai. We're talking about this really beautiful book called Global Family. And um, Dr. Desai, where can we buy your book? You can buy from Columbia University Press. If you would put down, you might even get a discount. But Amazon has it. Wonderful. So you can do that at independent bookstores. All mm-hmm. of them have it. So I look forward to having all of your readers, listeners, read it, send me a note. You can send it to my website, vishakadesai.com. Uh, it would be a pleasure. And what a wonderful conversation this has been. It is. You know, we're opening up the conversation because I believe, I strongly believe that we have platforms in life, whether it's one that has one listener or a hundred million listeners. As long as one person can see something in a way that they've never seen it before, you open the door and the invitation to a conscious conversation where I believe that love can enter without sounding cheesy in the sense of, oh, let love enter in kumbaya, but in right. harmony and peace and joy. The, the life that we live happens. For some, it happened very quickly. I mean, we, COVID was an example of that. So for me to live in this now present moment, it gives me joy to be able to be in harmony. And I wish that others would hold my hand and, and journey with me in harmony. You know, there's, we're going to talk about briefly as we get ready to enter the post-pandemic world, are you able to reflect on the lessons of the last year and how we can use these lessons or for you, your lessons? to? Well, I would say, yeah, Max, I think that what's most important, at least as I see it, is that pandemic didn't create problems. Mm. But pandemic... And COVID-19 exposed the problems that Mm -hmm. we have in the world. Globally. Globally globally and nationally and and locally. locally. And so it is the fissures of the society that are laid bare. Mm -hmm. And it's up to us to decide how we're going to repair it. And one of the ways to repair it is to recognize, I mean, it's not an easy task. I realize that. 
But we know that with this damn COVID and the pandemic, nobody is safe in the world until the entire world is safe. What that means is that all of us, 7.7 billion strangers on this earth, we have to recognize that when this pathogen of COVID comes into our body, no matter where you are, it's going to affect you. And it's because 99.9% of our DNA is the same. Mm-hmm. So it's up to us to figure out how we can be Californian, American, and global citizens all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And each one of those actions may be different. What you do locally may be a little different, but remember the global context of it. And that's what COVID teaches us. So we have to go back and ask ourselves, with the climate crisis, another pandemic will come again. Everybody tells us that. So we better get on with the program here. We have to learn to chew gum and walk at the same time, as they say. <laughs> you know, what's interesting to me about pandemic um, is that for some, this is their first pandemic. But for myself and a lot of my friends, HIV AIDS was a huge pandemic. And What's interesting about the pandemic we're in now is how fast, how fast the world has worked in order to find a resolution. And, you know, I go back to, to really a, a controversial conversation where this pandemic was killing wealthy white men. So right away, it was, let's find something so that we don't die. Where I, I believe that if this was something that was killing gay people like HIV AIDS was, then maybe there wouldn't have been such an expedited journey into finding a resolution. And so what that tells me is that the disconnect yet again of what this pandemic is shows that we're not really in harmony just yet. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Of COVID 19, I look at it as a duality, you know, and excuse my language, but there's no other way for me to say it except, you know, I'm a New Yorker. So for me, there's the thank you, COVID, and the fuck you, COVID. The thank you you in the sense that thank you for exposing what needed to be exposed and the fuck you for taking people we loved (laughs) and for causing such distress, you know, and with that duality, I think there's balance to say, okay, I can look at both sides of what this did to us collectively. And where do I fit in it so that we can then be as your book is global family. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I think that what we have to recognize is that, you know, lots of people have asked me, said, you seem to be an eternal optimist. And I always say, no, I'm a realistic optimist. Mm -hmm. In that, I know the glass is half full and half empty. Maybe it's more empty than it's half full. I don't know. But it's up to us to decide, are we going to make it more empty or are we going to make it more full? And that's what we have to, each one of us has to reflect on that and say, how do I leave this world when my time comes that I've left it a better place than what I found myself in? And that's partly to recognize that the more the world comes together, comes together, more we fight. And we have to, at some point, figure out how to be good neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think by reading a book, Global Family, it starts the conscious conversation of how just to do that. Um, For you, Dr. Desai, it's such a pleasure to have you here. And I hope you'll join me again so we can continue this conversation because... I enjoy it, but the illusion of time is always before us. <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, to, to go back to what you just said, it's so true. I think that in this time and space now, to be able to, to initiate conversation is the, one of the most important things. And so thank you for, for joining me here on Max and Friends to initiate the conversation. Um, for you, Dr. Desai, what, what is it that you wish your legacy to be? Um. I would like to think that I have done my part in living a life of consciousness with global mutual responsibility. And 
that through this book and other work I do, that the younger people really do feel that I have helped them find their path to global belonging. Mm. Well, I know for sure that even if they haven't found their path, you were definitely a light onto their path. So that I know for sure. And before we go, I would like to just play a quick um, speed round of words. And when I say the word, what it means to you, okay? And then okay. We'll, we'll let you go and we'll continue the conversation here on Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. Dr. Desai is here, author of World as Family. Please get the book. I promise you, it will shift your consciousness and your paradigm. What does the word global mean to you, Dr. Desai? Global is relational. Family. Big and small, everywhere. Love. Mutual responsibility. Respect. Listen with empathy. Hope. Imagine a better world. Well, you are giving us the possibility to imagine a better world. And I can only say to you, namaste. Thank you so much for joining me here on Max and Friends. And thank you for being the hope that um, our, global, our global family needs. <laughs> you know, you're bringing the world together as families. So thank you. Thank you for having the courage to finish the book and for publishing it. Thank, thank you. you very much for having me and for this wonderful conversation. And it will be continued. We will leave it as this, to be continued. Thank you. Wonderful. And before we go, what is it that you would like people to take with them into this week? With the book or just the otherwise? And of anything that you feel is on your heart to let people know. I think just listen to something that is different from what you're used to. See a movie that is about somebody other than what you're used to. Read a book that actually opens the world of another kind of life. Wonderful. Dr. Desai, thank you so much. Until next time, take life to the max. Take life to the max. The first time you're a friend, the second time you're family. So I look back, I look forward to having you back on Max and Friends. Super, looking forward. Until then, peace. Ciao, bye-bye. Ciao, bye-bye. You're all listening to Max and Friends here right now. I'm your host, Max Tucci, my guest, Dr. Desai. Buy the book, World as Family. It's up to you to make the decision to buy the book. So I hope you do buy it. And you know what? We're going to continue the whole thread of global family and world as family. My next guest who's joining us here right now, Miguel Sancho, is he has a book, More Than You Can Handle. More Than You Can Handle. Ronan, what's everyone listening to right here now on Max and Friends? LA Talk Radio, this is Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. Welcome back to the show. We're transitioning into another segment here with an amazing author. More than you can handle is the book. Tweet me at Max Tucci and let me know what it is that you feel you can handle and what you feel you cannot handle. The book, More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting-Edge Medicine that Cured the Incurable. Welcome, my next guest, Miguel Sancho to Max and Friends. Hello. Max, how are you? And thank you so much for having me on your show. And hello to your audience as well. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you here. And you are a veteran to TV and to production from A&E to 2020. You know how this works. (laughs) You've seen stories. (laughs) You've produced stories. You've traveled the world collecting stories. Why is it that you decided to write your story more than you can handle? That's a great question, Max. Thank you. Yeah, uh, the simplest answer I can give you is that I found myself essentially in the middle of what I considered, journalistically speaking, a very intense, very transformative story. And I had done that before hundreds of times with other people and what they were going through and how circumstances were impacting their lives. But in this instance, it happened to be impacting my family's life and my life personally. So I knew there was something, uh, there was a story worth telling there. The question I had before me is, did I have the strength and the honesty and the candor to kind of unleash my, you know, journalistic uh, 
techniques on myself and my own imperfections and some of the kind of uglier realities uh, that happen when families are devastated by uh, something as, as traumatic as a rare disease diagnosis of a child. So the book is basically an effort to kind of focus those uh, energies, those journalistic energies, including uh, one's critical capacities, on my own self and my own family's experience. So my question to you is, how do you separate being an award-winning producer journalist to now being a father? And where do you find the courage to say, my story, my family's story must be told? Where did that courage come from? Yeah, well, let me say this. I mean, I think we obviously live in an age of, you know, sharing, maybe oversharing. So <laughs> I, th- I think maybe, maybe you know, it's more a question of trying to take that initial impulse that, oh my goodness, this is really intense and it's really important. And then kind of filtering it through the qualifier that, okay, just because something's happening to me doesn't mean that everybody else is going to find it interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to focus on in the story things that I thought weren't just special to my circumstance or my family circumstance, but things that everybody can relate to. Uh, At the top of the intro to this segment, you asked your audience you know, what is a situation that you've been in that is more than you can handle? And the fact of the matter is, most of us have been in those situations, at least once in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so the book was constantly, as I was writing it, I was trying to keep in mind those moments when we're staring at the ceiling in the middle of a sleepless night, those moments when we're looking at the mirror in the bathroom at the beginning of a morning of a day we don't want to face, and we say to ourselves, either out loud or quietly, in our own minds, this is more than I can handle. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of what I was trying to do is, you know, obviously the book is about in the narrowest sense, the experience of dealing with a kid with a rare disease Mm -hmm. in the broader sense, it's dealing, it's a book about dealing with circumstances that you're frankly not prepared for Mm -hmm. and weren't expecting and, you know, might summon in you some infinite reservoir of strength and courage and nobility but also might make you angry, might make Mm. you depressed, might make you um, difficult to be around. And I think we've all been there. We've all been there. You know, what's interesting, we are setting this up so good because people are wondering, what are they talking about? What is this book about? What is this (laughs) journey? And, you know, what what I'll say is just from the title, more than you can handle, I think it also teaches us that we're not built to break. Mm -hmm. That we're not built to break. So with that said, let's get into the genesis of the book, into your son Sebastian's journey, and what happened? What happened? Sure, sure, sure. Well, the scene setting is that it was 2012, and my wife and I, uh, Felicia, who's really the hero of the story, were enjoying a, a, a lifetime that had been really blessed by all sorts of good fortune uh, we had a beautiful young daughter who was born healthy and happy and was just um, the light of our lives. And like you know, a lot of parents who have a good time with the first kid, we want we wanted to go back for seconds. And so we uh, had a beautiful baby boy named Sebastian who was born perfectly healthy, uh, as far as anybody knew, on May 1st, 2012. But uh, when he turned about two months, he started getting a series of very scary uh, fevers and infections. And when I say scary, I don't just mean, oh, our baby's sick. That's troublesome. It's our baby's sick, and the doctors don't know what the heck is going on, including you know upwards of around fifteen different specialists and pediatricians performing all sorts of tests on the kid. And if you've ever been to an emergency room with a infant child, uh, it's an experience of its own. Um, <laughs> You know, I'll share a story with you because my cousin had a brain tumor. Oh, my God. Um, He wasn't an infant, but he was Mm -hmm. like 13 or 14. And this is many years ago. And my mother decided to um, go with with, with his mother to the hospital, which was Montefiore Hospital in the Bronx. I know it well. And my Mm -hmm. mother was so, you know, she came out of this Greenwich, Connecticut, out of this luxurious home. And she ends up in the Bronx in this waiting room of what is this? Where are we? And just the fear in being in a space like that, it it heightens the tension. It heightens the anxiety. 
which then eventually led to my mother being one of the founders of the Montefiore Children's Hospital. Mm. But so I know that feeling of being in these spaces where death is literally knocking on many doors, where fear is present that is so tangible, where anxiety is so high that you want to run, but yet you feel like a lion in a cage. And as a parent with the child, how did you get through just the beginning? He was a, a two-month-old baby with these fevers and unknown disease. How, how were you processing this? Well, you know, I've, you, you, you try, first of all, to just convince yourself that it's a small thing. It's a hiccup. We're going to get through it. We're going to get back on track, right? We've been thrown into this world, like you just described, where we have no control. You really have no status when you're, uh, you know, a hospital patient. I mean, you're cared for. I don't want to say that, but you're not an important person with power to make, you know, big decisions uh, based on expertise because you have no expertise unless you're a medical professional. So it was just something we were going to just get and we were going to, you know, kind of, it was going to test us. And when it was over, we were going to high five and uh, celebrate the fact that we passed this test as a couple and as a family and move on as previously imagined. But then, ultimately, after months and months of this uh, diagnostic odyssey, as it's called in the community, we found out, thanks to uh, an immunologist who ran the proper test, that no, 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 it was not going to be something that was just difficult but finite in, in duration. It was going to be a permanent, incurable, life-threatening, rare disease about which not a lot of people knew a heck of a lot because there just wasn't that much to know since there's so few patients. So that was a whole other thing, which I describe in the book, is basically feeling like I was a, uh, a passenger on the Lido deck of a cruise ship who'd fallen overboard and wound up in the, in, the in, the, in the Gulf of Mexico while the cruise ship that was the rest of my life was steaming over the horizon. You just are suddenly completely, uh, not just in a short-term crisis that you find overwhelming, but your entire understanding of what the rest of your life and more importantly, your innocent, beautiful child's life is going to be. Wow. Now, I, I, it's so, where do we pick up the pieces? You know, there's a great <laughs> phrase that says peace from pieces. Where did mm -hmm. you find your peace in these pieces? Because this was a six-year journey where, you know, we had to quarantine last year, but you and your family were kind of doing this for quite some time for six years. Where did you yeah. find the piece in the pieces? So, you know, I tried a number of things that I wouldn't recommend. Uh, I tried kind of escaping into workaholism uh, and running to, you know, the office, which was, you know, one of the few places where I still had some sort of, there was some sort of order, some sort of predictability, some sense of control. Uh, I tried, you know, just kind of being a stoic and sucking it up uh, in a kind of, I would say pretty um, retrograde understanding of what masculinity is about, at least masculinity in the 21st century, um, taking a kind of macho approach to um, all these crazy things that were coming at me and pretending that it wasn't tearing me up, but it was tearing me up. And ultimately after, you know, um, things got so um, difficult uh, for me, I was having these, um, you know, these intense anxiety episodes, I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating, you know, for weeks on end, I was, you know, becoming intensely depressed, intensely irritable, and, you know, had flashes of temper that were ugly. Um, you know, my wife was threatening to divorce me. And it was then that I realized, you know, I can't just kind of be crashing through the situation and making things worse when people's lives are at stake. Uh, that if I'm going to fulfill my responsibilities as a father and a, as a husband, I needed to do exactly just what you said, make peace from the pieces. And so I embarked on this whole kind of self-help journey, which was almost ridiculous uh, in the number of things I tried. And I would just hopscotch around from various things, which I, by the way, I don't feel particularly ashamed about. I mean, I think uh, one of the kind of little tidbits of advice I would give people is that it's okay to try different things and figure out what constellation of modalities of self-help, if you will, work for you. So for example, I joined 
um, you know, a meditation group that, and of course, everybody's meditating these days. So to say that meditation helps is like, you know, it feels like everybody who's meditated for 20 minutes has to write a book about it. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, and you know, I found meditation very helpful, but it didn't, it didn't solve all my problems. Okay. It, it, it was a, it was an incremental, uh, help and a benefit. And I continue to meditate to this day and I encourage people to do so. There's all sorts of good reasons to do it, but there were some times, man, where it wasn't cutting it. And so I also found myself um, in a position where I sought out uh, some psychiatric therapy, some psychiatric medication, which again, was one of these things that I'd resisted for decades because, you know, the one thing that I thought I had going for me was my brain. And to admit that there was something not functioning right in my brain was um, a source of shame and humiliation and a blow to my ego. Um, well, you know, what's so interesting about this is as much as this is about Sebastian's story, this is about your story and how no experience really is ever wasted. So for parents who are listening right now, who are going through a challenge or anyone who's listening, you've been like to have a child who's sick and you don't know what's going on. And we'll talk about CGD in just a moment. But yeah. for, for families who are listening and people who are listening, we're thinking, I can't, this is more than I can handle. I can't handle this anymore. I'm ready to give up. The light at the end of the tunnel is a train and it is coming so fast. How do you tell them that it's not a train and it's actually the sun? Yeah, well, it's about, there are certain things, right, that you just have to start recalibrating, like mm -hmm. your your ego. And in my case, again, you know, the need for control. Uh, you have to, you know, accept the fact that there are things in life that you can't control. That doesn't mean you just take a, you know, a sunny approach to everything and th say, thank you, sir, may I have another every time something bad happens to you. <laughs> but it does mean that you try, you have to, well, by any means necessary, achieve a sense of proportion where you uh, aren't just reacting or overreacting to everything that comes at you, especially as it comes in, in an avalanche. So yeah. that's, that's one piece of it. Um, but I also think that it's really important to um, get meaning out of the moments that you, you have, if you're, um, you know, with, uh, a child who's uh, suffering to understand that suffering itself when properly experienced and properly understood can serve a higher purpose. Wow. Suffering can. But it, it, it sounds very easy for you to say this now, but I'm mm -hmm. sure that to get to be able to this point where you can say that, how did, how was your family's entire existence altered from this where now you can say you know suffering is is what is is how you just explained it how has your family shifted and navigated through six years of of an illness of of unknown of unknown territory yeah well i'm again we we it was trial and error with plenty of error and so you know one of the things that we did we we experienced what happens when you're not handling it the way you're supposed to and you can very easily see the problems compounding, right? It's, it's entirely within the realm of possibility for a bad situation to get worse and for, you know, the people participating in it to make it worse by not being mindful and not adhering to, um, you know, the responsibilities that will, that will enable them to, to, to navigate these waters. Uh, so, you know, but I'll tell you to answer your question directly, you know, we, we're so fortunate, not only in that our son was able to successfully endure, you know, a very difficult uh, medical procedure, um, a stem cell transplant that ended up curing him. But during that time, we met some of the most beautiful caregiving people I've ever seen. The nurses who were on the pediatric transplant unit, the other families we met in this community, many of whom I really need to emphasize had much worse than we do and much worse than we did in terms of the, both the diseases that their children initially had and the outcomes that they had. Okay. I'm telling you, we met some parents who lost their children and you know how they were able to assimilate that terrible tragedy and, and kind of transcend it uh, however they could 
was a real inspiration for us. Absolutely. Well, the illusion of time is before us. It always happens that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to have to wrap this up. I, I could, I, this is such a story that I think the only way for our listeners to really appreciate, understand it is to buy the book more than you can handle. I'm your host, Max Tucci, here on Max and Friends. My guest is Miguel Sancho. The book, More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and a Cutting-Edge Medication That Cured the Incurable. Um, Thank you so much, Max. Before we go, um, I just want to play a little word game with you. And then I want to talk about, and then we'll talk about um, CDG. Uh, CGD, sorry, CGD. It's new for me, so I've got to process it's it all. It's new for everyone. Max, <laughs> let me just tell you, when you go into what this is disease it? world... What it's, is it? I, Let's just jump into it. What is yeah. CGD? Yeah, so let me just say, no apology necessary. When you fall into the rare disease world, it's all nothing but unpronounceable, non-intuitive disease names that you don't want to remember and can't remember. So um, basically, this is what happened. My son was born with a monogenetic mutation on his X chromosome that resulted in his body not being able to produce a certain kind of white blood cell that fights bacterial and fungal infections, the main ones. So basically, he would uh, get an infection and the white blood cells, a certain type of white blood cell that's designed for that, called a neutrophil, would swarm to the area but wouldn't function. Um, so, uh, that's basically what CG is. It means that the fevers would kick in, I would imagine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the, the white blood cell count goes up, the body's fighting infection, the body's trying to do what it's supposed to do, but it can't. And, um, pain you all must have gone through witnessing this. Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, and so part of the, part of the book is the story about how this miraculous medicine basically was able to construct an entirely new immune system. Uh, in his body, and on a parallel track, how my wife and I, you know, decided that we also needed to kind of build an immune system for the mind, an immune system for, for the ah. spirit, so that you know we could Self-care. deal with all the Self-care. all the exactly all the, all know, the pathogens. We're doing, the show, we're doing a show. Well, last week we did a show on soul and ego, which is all what this is about, because you discover yep. both in this, and then we're working on a show now called Self Care versus healthcare. And if you do self-care, you won't need healthcare. But what's fascinating is that you have made a legacy out of this, more or less, because you and your wife are involved in raising awareness for this immune deficiency. Tell us a little bit about the awareness and where we can get more information. Oh, that's so kind of you. Yeah. So uh, so my wife, who again, you know, really is the hero of the story. I'm kind of like, you know, I'm kind of like C-3PO and she's Princess Leia. Sort of. <laughs> um, but uh, she, who uh, has a background in, coincidentally, in PR, and she had some healthcare clients in her prior life, um, decided in the middle of this that she was going to uh, become um, a big patient advocate. And she started uh, a organization called the CGD Association of America, which is quickly becoming a very powerful voice in that community. Uh, and, and more broadly, because it is a, it's a rare disease, the uh, immune deficiency community, which is, um, you know, if you, take a, if you take a bunch of rare diseases that have certain things in common and put them together, you get actually a rather large uh, community. And uh, so she's speaking at uh, conferences these days. In fact, the Immune Deficiency Foundation's biannual uh, conference is happening this week, and she's a featured speaker. So she's really turned her experience um, into, a, into a wonderful resource for patients who are going through the similar things that we are, and also for the research community, because with rare diseases, you know, organizations like the National Institute of Health want to track uh, and treat as many patients as they want so they can understand, you know, the variety of ways the phenotype expresses itself and the, the various means by which the disease can be, um, can be cured and treated. Oh, wow. Well, I'm really honored and grateful that you were able to come and spend some time with us here on Max and Friends. And thank you for having the courage. You know, I'm in the process of writing a book right now, and there's a courage to actually finishing it. You know, People think, oh, the process of writing is one thing. But no, to actually finish the book, publish it, and share it, there's true courage in that. So thank you for that. We're going to play a quick word game. I know, Ronan, we've got to wrap it up. Just... To a minute more. So I just want to go through a word game with you in the sense of I'll read you a word and then tell me what it means to you so we can mm-hmm. inspire listeners with this. What does the word family mean to you? It means joy. It means love. It means belonging. 
journey? It means learning. It means struggling. And hopefully at the end, it means sharing what you've learned. Challenges. Challenges means... Challenges is a great one. Challenges means testing your limits. Challenges means exploring yourself. Challenges means facing the truth. Mm. Awareness. Awareness means enlightenment, awakening, transcendence. And the last, it's not a word, it's a name, Sebastian. <laughs> He's my hero. And how is your hero? I'm happy to say that he's walking the streets with a brand new, bespoke, custom-made Cadillac Escalade of an immune system <laughs> that he can now go road test as 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 needed. He can play with other kids, even if they've got a sniffle. He can, you know, play in dirt and sand, and he can, you know, have a runny nose. That's allowed now. I will say this, after six years of you know, social distancing and quarantining and wearing masks for various people. He was not thrilled that he had to spend all of third grade. Um, in a mask. Yeah, in a but mask. But he's got 22-inch rims now, so he can roll out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm grateful that you're here. We have to wrap this up. Thank you so much for your, for your time, for your story. More than you can handle. Where can people find it? It's on Amazon. It's at Barnes & Noble. It's at every quality bookstore. And they'll, they'll be happy to order it. And Max, it's let me just tell you one thing. I know you yeah. have to go. Let me give you my one piece of advice I was for ask people you who are writing books. Here it comes, especially when it comes to finishing. And this is for anybody. This is for the listeners, too, because everybody should consider writing a book who's lived long enough to have something to write about. It's a two-step process. The first step is write a crappy book. Don't, don't get intimidated by the fact that that flashing curse is there on the blank screen and you're on the same dance floor as William Shakespeare. Just get through the beginning, the middle, and end. Machete your way through the jungle to write a book without caring if it's good or bad. Yeah. Step one. Step then step two, go back and turn your crappy book into a good book. Perfect. Um, you know what Jackie Collins said? You got a book in you. Just got to write it every day. If you write every day for 365 days, you'll have a book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> on that note, we, the illusion of time is here. And the only thing we can write anymore is goodbye. And thank you for listening to Max and Friends. I'm your host, Max Tucci. Miguel, thank you for joining me. For all of you listening tonight, I hope this show inspired you to really look at life and family in a different way and appreciate your family. Love them more than ever. Hold on to them. And tell yourself, I love you too, in the process. I love you for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Max Succi, for Max and Friends. Good night and good karma.